Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Fifteen hundred jumps, winners under rules to add to a few more on the flat. And that's that after a quarter of a century in the saddle for my first guest this morning. Tom Scudamore, how does it feel? How does it feel a couple of days on from making the decision? Um, I feel very content and, and, and happy for a change. <laughs> um, I don't feel like I've um, got one more winner to ride or anything like that. I'm, I'm feeling very, very content and I've, I've been very privileged, so I'm, I'm feeling very happy. Um, you say very happy and content for a change, suggesting that the, maybe the last few years you weren't always uh, happy and content. No, it was always, all through my career, it was always about trying to find the next winner. Um, You've got David coming on later, but it was always our joke. You know, we'd, we'd go into the winners' enclosure or into the parade ring after riding a riding a winner, and you know, the owners would be like, "Congratulations, that was fantastic," and just be like, "That was then. This is now." You know, it's sort of straight on to the next thing. So, you know, all the way through, I was always driven by just trying to ride as many winners as possible. And at times, you don't look back and maybe appreciate the success that you've had. It just—it's not a blur, but it just—you're you, just so focused on trying to achieve that. Um, you know, you don't don't look back and maybe take things in like like you should. And that's very intense over a very long period of time. If that's consistently your mindset. Yeah, it is. But it's I was very content and I was very um, comfortable where I was. But I think for plenty around me, it probably wasn't quite so easy. But for those who haven't been catching up with the the news this week, just tell us why now and and why out of the blue like that. Yeah, um, I've always it's always been something. In the, in the back of my mind, all, all the way through my career, is when is the time? Be prepared for it because the chances are you're not going to have the choice and the decision to make it. You'll either get the sack or um, a doctor will sit down and tell you, you know, you've got to stop. Because of what happened to my grandfather, he had a very bad fall around Wolverhampton um, and he, he had to retire you know, because of that. So, Dad and myself, all the way through our careers, it was always drummed into us that you have to be prepared for life after racing. So, all the way through, always had. Um, ideas and things that I'd like to do and always had you know, uh, different interests. So, but obviously when you get to 35 and up from there, you are on borrowed time, you're coming to the back end of, of, of your career and you know that it's, it's going to come. You had so many sportsmen say they know when the time is right and I thought that's just what, what a load of nonsense, what a, what a cliche. I'd had a fall at Chepstow um, a couple of weeks ago, had a bang on the head, was concussed. Mm. You know, but I felt, felt okay, no different to normal. Um, did all the protocols, went absolutely fine, sailed through that, came back. I had a fall and I lay there. And for the, normally when I lie having a fall, I'm lying down thinking, why did that happen? What should I have done differently? You know, I'm angry with myself, I'm angry with life at that point, and I just want to make it better and try and improve again. I lay there after getting a kicking and I thought, I, 
I don't ever want to do that again. And that's the first time that has ever happened. And I thought, that, that, that's it. Was it just the, the pain or the inability no, of your body to recover? It wasn't, wasn't it the was pain. It was just a trigger. Yeah, it was a trigger. And um, I am aware that I can't do the things I could do six months ago you know, from, from a physical side of things. I mean, I'm, in, I'm in good shape, um, but I am 40 years old, however much I try and lie about it. <laughs> um, you know, time waits for no man. And the knocks, the recovery, it, it does take that little bit longer. And it, it does leave its scars. And that's, that's what, you know, although I think I could go on till I'm 50, mm. I, I can't. And, 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 and it's just, it's just all, all got too much. Do you consider yourself lucky in a sense that you did have that moment of realisation? Yes, it, I, I feel very lucky that I was able to put myself in a position where, where I could choose. Very, uh, very few jockeys get to choose when to say thank you very much and exit the stage. You know, most it's you're replaced by somebody younger or a doctor sits you down and says you cannot do this anymore. And I was very fortunate. I, neither of those things applied to me. It struck me this week, of course, that it's not just been 25 years for you in the limelight because you were so visible as a child when your father was coming to the end <laughs> of, a of his career. A precocious little something, I think some would say. Well, my memories are very vivid of you appearing quite regularly on, on the BBC, particularly and occasionally on Channel 4, before you were you know, old enough to, to, to ride in races when you, were, when you were growing up and your dad was one of the most famous sportsman in the country, multiple champion jockey, retired in, in 93. Yeah, um, I would always go racing. I'd always follow Dad around like a little shadow. And even after he retired, um, obviously with his association, Nigel Twiston Davis was always racing. And it was, you know, it's not just a, a life, it's, a, you know, it's absolute passion and, and everything that I've ever wanted to do um, has always been involved in racing. It was all I was ever going to do. You mentioned obviously that you were going round after him at the races because there was only a, well, only a three or four year gap between his career ending and your career, your career starting. Did that make your grandfather Michael's influence even more sort of intense over your over your childhood? De definitely, um, for various many reasons. Um, I, I I probably spent as much time with Granddad as I, as I did with Dad. Maybe not. You know, maybe possibly even even more time with Granddad, especially when uh, he retired from training around 1991 and, and came to live next door to us, basically. So um, I spent the majority of my formative and times when you're developing years in the company of my grandfather, and he he had a huge huge effect on, on me. And um, you know, I'd like to think that's the way you know the way I, I try and conduct myself and everything that I've I've done is basically because of of the standards which my grandfather set. Of course. Most people in racing now know your dad quite well, or if they don't, they know of him quite well. Fewer people will will have known your grandfather as well. What was he like? What kind of character was he? Um, he was an extraordinary man, and you know the, the amount of text messages and, and things I've had through from the last couple of days. Um, the ones I've got most pride from are the people that granddad had a touch so for instance you know he had an enormous effect on Fergal O'Brien he had an enormous effect on Matt Nichols who is assistant to um, Kim Bailey mm -hmm. you know all these people he saw come through the yard at Nigel's um, you know wanting to make a career in racing and he'd have had so much pleasure from watching what they'd achieved and, and how well they've done um, and he was a huge huge part of, of their formative years as well he was that sort of fellow he he loved taking people under his wing, teaching them not just 
how about horses and, and which he knew you know i mean craigie what what he knew about horses you you you, 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 you it was just extraordinary, but the way you conduct yourself, the way you go about things, you know, he was just you see, he was just a real man who, who standards set and everybody just followed. And, and how did that manifest itself for you during those first few years of your career when you were fortunate enough to be a Scudamore, but on the other hand, you kind of had to labour <laughs> under being a Scudamore? It was never a labour. It really wasn't, and it never felt that way. Um, I was... I just felt so proud of what granddad and dad had achieved that I didn't want to let the side down. That was the only pressure I put on myself was that I didn't want to be the one that, oh, and then there's Tom, you know, there's Michael, <laughs> Peter, and Tom did okay, you know, sort of thing. So that was the, it wasn't the pressure of living up to them, trying to match their achievements or anything like that. I just wanted to be respected and be successful. And, you know, I, I think I've achieved both of those things. Um, but yeah, you know, they're, they're, so it was never that pr pressure of, of, of trying to match their achievements. It was just being able to sit down with them, look them in the eye, and you know, be treated as equal. And say, I didn't stuff this up. Yeah, exactly. As you said to me earlier in the week, <laughs> I didn't drop the baton. No, no, absolutely. And it's, and it's the same, with, you know, through just through the generations, but through how my, my grandfather's generation, dad's generation, how they treated the sport and how the respect they had for the sport as well. And I think that whatever generation the, the mantle of racing or the baton is passed on to, you know, you, you can't drop it. And you know, the improvements that was made for jockeys during my grandfather's career and then again through dad's career and through onto mine, I didn't want to be part of the generation that lets what's gone on before down through, through different reasons. And of course, you intersected with a lot of jockeys that had ridden with, with your father, and now you leave a weighing room that looks completely, <laughs> completely different. Are there any, are there any jockeys that you started with that are still, that are still um, there? There or? are a few that are older than myself, and I think Will Kennedy and Paddy Brennan. But um, there's nobody. You know, they they had they hadn't got going when when I, when I started, so um, I was on my own. You know, Dickie Johnson would have been the last last one from from the generation that you know, he started maybe three or four years before me. Mm -hmm. So we, we basically went through it all, all together. He'd, he'd have been the last of my generation, as it were, that I, that I see. How is it a different place now to what it was when you started? Um, things have changed so much. Obviously, you know, the, over 25 years, life has changed. <laughs> On the outside, never mind the, the racing bubble. But the the thing that's changed most recently, obviously, COVID has had a an effect on this, whether it's detrimental or or not, whichever way you look at it. But for instance, the segregation inside the weighing rooms now, you know, is is alien. If you if if I walked in to the weighing room now compared to ten years ago, five mm -hmm. years ago, it is an alien environment compared to how it was before because. Um, you, know, you, were, you were suddenly kept in cubicles and it, you, you didn't have that camaraderie and, and perhaps looking after each other that maybe you'd have had before because it, it became so much more insular. So you're, everyone's in a, more of a, a little bubble now than yeah, they were. Yeah, it's gone back a little bit to more to how it was, but with that segregation now, you know, the, 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 the areas of, of sitting down, having a cup of tea, you know, all those things, things have, have, have changed. You know, the, the weighing rooms have become bigger in many ways, and, and rightly so, probably catching up with all the other sports. You know, you have warm-up areas. You know, for instance, Leicester now have uh, exercise bikes, warm-up areas, sand down the same. You know, I think the weighing room at Worcester looks like it's going to be absolutely fantastic. So, you know, things like that have, have changed for the better. 
but maybe the way that um, everybody can can relate to each other, you become a little bit more separate. Look, it is a, a sport where you are um, an individual, but before going through, everybody used to sort of look after each other a little bit more, whereas now you, I just feel that it's become a little bit more detached. Now, those of you with the keenest eyes will notice that Neil Channing and David Pipe have joined us on the sofa. Uh, David, your, your careers have been yoked together, I'm not quite since birth, but it's not far off, is it? Not the, far off. I no. always wanted Pipe and Scudamore on the sofa together. <laughs> I got there in the end. <laughs> yeah. No, um, yeah, no, from a very early age. Um, yeah, uh, obviously, um, my father and his father uh, were a great combination, and uh, he's had a fantastic career. Um, you know, started riding for me when I was training point to pointers as an amateur, and uh, it went from yeah, you know, went from there. And uh, what a career he's had. How do you feel this week? Is it is it slightly weird? Yeah, but it came as a bit of a shock uh, as it did to everyone um, and so it's just sinking in now but it was strange at Ascot yesterday and um, yeah it will be strange for a while and uh, we'll take a while to adjust. So when you were training pointers um, and Tom was riding them as an amateur obviously you wanted to be a jockey at that point what were you thinking were you thinking you were going to take over from your dad or or had you not really thought that far ahead at that point? Yeah I was going to take over from dad at some point yeah. um, and um, it it progressed well, didn't it? You, you rode uh, pointing and then obviously went conditional um, and it just evolved from there, really. And there was never any doubt? It never. It, did it feel seamless all the way through? I think it did, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I think. We always, we always, the, the, the joy of it, we always got on, on you know, from whatever level it was, we're pretty similar. We wouldn't, we'd be quite private people, wouldn't we? I yeah. mean, we, we balance each other quite well. You're, <laughs> Or negative, I'm positive, and, <laughs> and, um, and uh, yes, yeah, and it, yeah we, we just al always have done. It's always, you know, we haven't had to say an awful lot to each other, and we know exactly what he each other's thinking. He comes in off a horse after winning, or oh, we could go and win this race, that race, and, and this race. I say, Hang on a minute, <laughs> let's just calm down a little bit here. But um, uh, yeah, no, uh, I think that that's why we probably worked well together. Neil and I were chuckling away there when Brendan Powell was. Was talking about talking about getting you the only two <laughs> rollickings you've ever had off the off the bus. I can remember. I think uh, what fifteen years we were stable jockey and twenty five years I've been riding for David from pointing. I can think of five. You know, we, we always have little disagreements, but it was always kept behind closed doors. I can genuinely think of five proper. Not arguments, but proper times he's been crossed. And I, I said Native River twice, but actually it was only Native River the once when we got beaten in the new novice chase around, around, around Newbury. Um, I was riding on Tom Portude, won the French champion hurdle, and was mm. a very, very good horse. Um, but and unfortunately, a very expensive one. Yeah, but he was, <laughs> he was money well spent because he was fantastic. I mean, dual Cheltenham Festival winner, won a French champion hurdle. Uh, you know, I'd have loved to have ridden so many more, more like him. Um, however, he was... A horse we we thought you know, hopefully might be a gold cup horse 
and unfortunately, we were beaten by a goal cup horse. We just didn't appreciate it at the time. <laughs> Native River, yeah. So you were like, how could you get beaten by yeah, that? That's right, yeah. 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 Um, what would you do again? You looked like you were winding, going to the wind, going to the ditch. What were you doing? <laughs> and he was giving us weight. Yeah, I, I just kept saying, I don't know. I honestly, I, there's nothing I could have done. I know when fin finishing second, there's always something I want to do differently. I generally don't know. That's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> David, Tom was talking before the, before the break about you know, the importance of what you say to owners before and, and after a race. I'm guessing down the years that has been an absolute godsend for you, having somebody that can string full sentences together and do it kind of, you know, do it in a, in a, yeah. uh, a really nice way. Yeah, it's not just about the riding, it's, you know, in the paddock beforehand and the feedback you get afterwards and being, you know, back in the yard with the lads and, and girls as well. So, yeah, no, he was the complete professional. Um, you know, and you know he's been riding as well as ever the last few years. You know, but um, Tom felt the time was right. Neil, these um, these sort of landmark moments in in racing when a, a jockey who's had fifteen hundred winners decides to move on to something else, it, it tends to get everyone pretty nostalgic, doesn't it? Yeah, so so many things I've been laughing at. Actually, I just. I was just thinking, professional gamblers never really retire. They just kind of keel over at some stage. But I don't know, if, if you asked a load of people to do those videos of a pro gambler, like if you said, oh, Channing's retired, would you want to say a few words for the camera? You couldn't show it on TV. <laughs> <laughs> They'd all be like, yeah, I always knew he was going to go skin. I hated him. <laughs> They're all so effusive. It's lovely. Uh, also, so the number of people that texted me in the last couple, like since, since, I don't know, it must have come out that like on Sunday was going to have Tom on today. And a lot of people texted me and saying, God, that must make you feel old. I'm like, yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> it really does. I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to have met Tom and David a couple of times before. And um, in recent years, I've also met Peter and Martin. And, uh, you know, David Pipe, uh, your grandfather, was a hero of mine as a, as a gambler because I like to watch him bookmaking. I found, you know, I always used to seek him out in the ring. Yeah, he was a very interesting bookmaker to watch. Yeah. He would uh, he would go he would always put his prices up really late, and he would go to the paddock and check out the you know which ones were looking fit and unfit and whatever. But so whenever I see Tom, I always just think, oh my god, it just makes me feel so old. And now he's retired, it's just even worse. Thanks for depressing me. <laughs> wait till you wait till you see Margot Myrtle and Amy. <laughs> so fast forward about thirty years' time. And, mm. And here are the tributes to <laughs> <laughs> Old Skewel, he'll still be there, won't he? He'll be on, he'll be on the line. But you, I mean, you must have very, very vivid memories of that, of that kind of pipe Skewdemore, um, mid to late 80s, early 90s, just shock and awe across, across racing. You know, that completely yeah. turning the game upside down. I mean, what was it like to, what was it like to be sort of growing up through that? Well, um... I thought it was the norm at the time, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I've worked out it's not since, but uh, yeah, no, it was just a, a, an amazing era, wasn't it? Um, and, um, you know, Dad changed the way that people train racehorses now um, with interval training, and um, uh, Peter School worked extremely well uh, with Dad, and yeah, it was a golden era. Um, sometimes these eras come along, um, and it was fantastic that we continued it. It's almost impossible to believe, though, that their their working relationship was as sort of. No, I'm not saying yours is chilled out, but you, you're two quite kind of considered relaxed people. I, there, theirs must have been a more kind of intense experience altogether, wasn't it? 
different era, I suppose. Yeah, I, they. I think they again they enjoyed all the same things we did. It was <laughs> everything that's been done, and uh, you said we're not we're not chilled out either. <laughs> no, me or you. No. Um, <laughs> you just give that. You just, you're quite good at portraying that, though. Yeah, is it? but it's it, what, what it's very important that if you're going to work together, you have to look like you're everything you're doing together in the same direction. Behind closed doors might be a different thing, and, yeah. and, and, and that was the. I think what Dad and Martin had, and what myself and David had, is that we trusted each other implicitly. You know, if, if David said something to me, do this, I would do it. I'd run through a brick wall for him because, you know, he was nine times out of 10, he was right. And the one time out of 10, I was right. I would, wouldn't let him forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Dad and Martin's relationship was exactly the same. And that, I think that's the, the, the important bit is that, you know, on one hand, it may, may look one thing, but say behind closed doors, if we, you know, if we ever had any disagreements or anything, it was done in the correct and, and formal and proper way. That's right, way. yeah, and that's what's made the partnership last as long as it has. And, and to what extent for you as well, you've got so much to worry about, you've so many moving parts, so many things on your mind, to what extent does not having to worry about your jockey actually help you out? It helps you out a lot because now I'm looking for... <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a great team of uh, lads at home, um, but uh, we're still, we still have to look for jockeys. And, uh, yeah, it's um, added, added work. Um, you know, with, when Scoo was riding, then you know, you, know where, you know where the main man's going um, and you can work around that. So um, it's you know, slightly different now. Come on, give him another year. You dropped him right in it here. Um, I, don't, I don't. I get a feeling there's no turning back from this one. I don't think we're gonna. You're not gonna do a Davy Russell on us anytime soon. No, I, 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 no, I'm, I'm not. It's. Um, as I you mentioned it earlier that that clarity. It's, it's very, very clear to me. It, it, did you, did, did, it, have you, did you think about him the other day when he retired and then came back again? Did it, did it? Um, I wondered how you how you felt about that. Just you know, then you weren't considering retiring, but I wonder what you sort of what you think about um, it. Everybody's different, um, and maybe his circumstances were slightly different as to why why he retired in, in the first place. Um, and then obviously the injury with Jack uh, and coming back. Um, I, I I always am a definite person. I think that if you if you make a decision, then generally you should stay by it. But everybody's different, and. The, Davey doesn't need anybody to tell him what to do. He's always beat, danced the beat of his own drum. Yeah. And what a fantastic fella, what a fantastic jockey. And uh, again, you know, all the people that I've ridden with, and I've been very, very lucky you know, to, to ride with so many great jockeys. And when you talk about the elite, he, he's up there. Davey can do what he likes. We talk about golden eras of, of jockeys. And you know, Neil, you and I have spoken on this program before about what we thought was a bit of a golden era of, of flat jockeys in the 80s when Cawthon came over <coughs> to join Piggott and Swinburne, Cast and Eddery. And if, I, if I'm leaving out a whole load, then I apologise, but you get the gist of it. I wondered whether you would reflect on the middle of your career as being in the thick of a, a bit of a golden age of jump jockeys with McCoy, Johnson, Dunwoody was obviously in the, just slightly before, um, Geraghty, Russell, Carberry, and etc. I think they were fantastic jockeys. They were unbelievable and whatever era there's always going to be a group of, of, mm. of great jockeys I actually think the golden age of, of, of jump jockeys was just a little bit before then obviously that when when dad retired mm -hmm. I think from 96 to 2000 you could choose 20 jockeys that were 
absolutely top class. The list will go on. You're talking about, you haven't mentioned Charlie Swan, Swan. Yeah. Dunwoody, Norman McCoy, Williamson. Norman Williamson, Fitzgerald. Graham Bradley, Nick Fitzgerald. The list goes on and on and on. And you know, Tony Dobbin, there are people that we, we'd have forgotten about that there were. I think that age of jockeys for the four years was extraordinary. So when you were just starting out, yeah. you were just starting, being, you were just a conditional? Yeah, I think that, that, that period of jockeys was, was by far the best. I think that was the, a stronger strength and depth wise. I mean, the Walsh, McCoy, Dickie Johnson, Barry, they were fabulous. Um, but I think that just a little bit before that, there were even more of them. And, and you, you'd have been riding, you know, because you were kind of a, a, a fashionable conditional as well when you, when you started, you were riding a lot of winners, you'd have been going out in races where all of those people would have been competing and you were, what, 16, 17? Yeah, like I, remember, I remember How being, was that? Um, exciting. I loved every second. <laughs> but I remember walking into the wearing room at Hereford and uh, there was Dunwoody, McCoy, Jamie Osborne, all sat in the corner. I mean, and they were giants, absolute heroes. And to think that I've ridden as many winners as some and more than others, it, it just absolutely blows my mind. But they were, yeah, they, I remember walking in and you'd be in all walking in, seeing them in the weighing room. But as soon as I put my colours on going out, there was such a thrill to, to ride against them. But I wasn't going around thinking, crikey, I'm against all these guys. I was yeah. thinking, <laughs> yeah, here we go. <laughs> if, you, if you were, okay, if you were to describe some of these jockeys using one word. Yeah. Okay, Dunwoody. Just iron. Uh, he, he, That'll do, yeah. iron, iron. <laughs> Maguire. <laughs> Maguire was in his, in his prime before, unfortunately, injuries took their toll eventually. And, you know, he, he retired before he had to, but I was just, he, he was just an animal. Just animal, animal, that'll do. <laughs> um, what about Graham Bradley? <laughs> Fun. <laughs> Bradders. What'd you say? Fun. Fun. I was say unique. Yeah, unique, possibly. Um, Osborne. Osborne. <laughs> Seeing as you've offended you've already, already. Used, <laughs> you've already used fun and unique, so he's an international man of mystery. <laughs> he'd, he'd, he'd like that as a jockey, as a rider, as a jockey, he was um, sublime. Uh, Norman Williamson. Norman Williamson was just—he was always his positioning and his tactical awareness was phenomenal. Tactician. I used to love following him and, and, and on the times, on the rare occasions I rode against Charlie Swan a few times as well, their, their, they, their sense of awareness and, and tactical awareness and, and, and how, how Norman would, would find himself in a pocket just down the inside. He'd come out of nowhere. He was just, he was phenomenal like that. So there's no way Charlie Swan would have let Brendan Powell off his inside, is there? <laughs> no. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. course yesterday really was all about Shishkin and whether he could come back to something like his best to win the the Ascot chase he didn't just win he absolutely bolted up I mean that was a, a monstrously impressive performance it certainly was um, you know, there was that moment when Nico was squeezing up onto the onto the bend turning into the home straight thinking is he gonna you know, are we gonna see the old Shishkin or are we gonna you know, is he not gonna be able to do it anymore and he's just taken off with him it was a tremendous performance and once again he's a great credit to, to the skills of all, all involved with him to, to come back from the disappointment of both Cheltenham and Sandown to go and put a performance like that was was fantastic 
I mean, David, you, you'd appreciate from a trainer's point of view how hard this is. Yeah? If, you've, if you've got a horse who is, is pulled up running like his legs are tied together, having been a great champion, and then gets diagnosed with a rare bone condition, then comes back in the Tingle Creek and runs, it's all right. Okay, yeah. You think that the, the, the slide is surely irreversible, isn't it? Except then you get that. Nicky Henderson's done it again, hasn't he? You know, I mean, it, it always did look like he was crying out for a little bit further in trip. Um, yet he was good enough to do what, what he did over two miles. And obviously with the wind operation as well, um, it's all, all come together. Um, didn't th I, I thought he might win yesterday. I didn't think he'd be quite as impressive as what he was. Uh, so I was very taken with it. And if he were yours, Tom, I mean, it was quite funny because the, the debate going into the race was, should he be still running at two miles? Now, now he's seen out two five strongly. <laughs> should he be going to the Gold Cup, not the Ryanair? Um, I don't think Nicky Henderson needs advice off anybody. You know, you, the, no, but the, we're the, sure as hell going to give it to him, whether the, he the, wants the it other, or not. But the other thing where it's extraordinary, obviously Cheltenham is one thing. Any horse can disappoint, and they found the reasons why he fixed them. But you see him when he ran around Sandown, he's jumping left. I know it's over two miles, but he's jumping mm. left. Mm. He never looked comfortable. And it's not like he's... You know, he always looked like when he was winning over two miles that yeah, he'll get a little bit further. But even that day at Sandown, it's not like he's flying from the back of the last and you're really staying on strongly he never looked happy at any stage mm. in the tingle creek and you sort of come away thinking he was a real shadow of his former self and yet what two months later if that he's he's brought him back it's 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 extraordinary and a, a great credit to them all and the biggest question is is how uh, one man who might be able to answer that question um, is is Nico de Boinville, who's who's on the line now <laughs> where are you is he there or there, <laughs> there. Uh, Nico uh, good morning Morning. Which he, story are we on at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> we'll come. We'll we'll come to a bit more skew in a minute. But uh, but yesterday was all about you and and Shishkin. My God, he was he was good. I watched it again last night. I thought, is that is that actually the best he's ever been? What do you think? Uh, well, he he did feel fantastic yesterday. I mean, it was more reminiscent of his times as a novice going into the Arkle, um, where. You know, he just seemed to travel and jump, and he was very slick over his fences. Uh, the step up and trip certainly helped, and the wind off as well. So it was a culmination of factors. Uh, the, the, the trip has been talked and talked and talked of, and it, but Tom was just saying it, he just looked a completely different animal the way he was going forward and, and taking the bridle. Do you, do you think almost with a horse as classy as him, tri, tri, trip's not irrelevant, but it, it's a bit academic. He could win over over any distance against most horses, couldn't he, if he's, in, if he's on song? Uh, definitely. I, I, I think, you know, he's been winning at two miles because he's a very classy animal. Um, and I think, you know, if he comes through what I think we'll, we'll be going to the Ryanair at Cheltenham, if he comes mm -hmm. through that, then um, that opens up a few options, I think. It was interesting, I was listening to you on, on ITV yesterday and you were saying that, you know, you could kind of tell when he went to the second fence that he properly locked onto the bridle. I think you were working yesterday for ITV, Tom. Was it uh, Luke Harvey said that he'd been watching him going down to the start and he, he you know, properly took a, 
nice, nice yeah, hold down. It to looked the like start. he ran away with Nico. Luke said that he was, he was, he was pretty keen. I said, I said that's just the way he rides. I didn't go very far. I only showed him the second fence down the hill. I don't know what, I don't know what they were watching. <laughs> but I guess, I guess the point they were trying to make was maybe that. To be fair, it was a decent bit of analysis, wasn't it? it, it like he's like, I think this horse is up for it today. Could you even feel when you got him in the paddock and went down to the start that he was in a better place? Uh, no, I, I no. Think that's, I think that's rubbish, really. So they were, so they, so they were having a good, they were having a good guess, but were made to look damn clever. Uh, I think, yeah, I think they're just a good guess and trying to look clever. I think uh, it was more, it was more. As soon as he jumped off and went over the first, then I thought, oh, here we go, we're we're back in business. Um, because it's not until the tapes go back when you're in amongst horses, and then you know if they're up for it, if they're up feeling great and, and up for a battle. Um, Nicky Anderson's got a canny knack of this. I mean, we, we, we went through the whole Sprinter Sacra story uh, and, and it was one of the great stories. And he sort of compared this a little bit to that, to that yesterday. Perhaps it's not quite such a dr dramatic comeback. After all, he's only had one blip and one kind of OK run in, in between times. But it's clearly been a titanic effort to get him back to his best. How on earth does he do it? Uh, I think a lot of patience and um, very good connections in, in Shishkin's owners. You know, you, you have to have owners who understand the game and know that these things take time. Um, we are all incredibly disappointed after the champion chase last year and we couldn't put our fingers on it. And it took a lot of, um, you know, investigation to find out what had gone on. And, and then you get a run like the Tingle Creek, which again, you know, was a bit deflating. Um, and then it's just a case of, of letting things come to light in their own due course and, and uh, taking a bit of time and, and getting it back to where we knew that he was in a good place to go and run as well as he could in a grade one. But as I said before, we didn't know what we were going to expect going into Saturday. And it was just um, fantastic that he came out now looking like he'd have a favourite chance in, at Cheltenham. I, I know he'd, he'd had a, uh, a breathing operation. Was that, was that because there was an issue or was it more in hope than expectation? Uh, that, there was a definite issue. I worked him up on our grass, which over 10 furlongs, you can really sort of find out sometimes yeah. what the problems are. Um, and he did flip his uh, palate. And so he just went in and got, uh, got cauterized, which doesn't take too long. And it's a fairly simple procedure. Although I don't know myself how they do it, but these vets are very, very good. Um, and then we, we stuck a tongue tie on him and he seemed to sort of thrive off that and and it was just all systems go. It's interesting that, isn't it? I mean, is that something that could have been bothering him in his races without you realising it, or would you have definitely known? Uh, potentially. I mean, sometimes these, these wind problems, they, you can hear them, and sometimes it's a silent wind problem. You don't know. And uh, I hadn't heard anything in the Tingle Creek. I'm, a lot of these horses at the moment running around, they've all got uh, breathing issues at some point. Um, it's just a mark of where the breed has gone. Um, and... The, the sire Sholokov is, is, is quite renowned for it as well. So um, it's just a case of, of finding out, and we're all fairly well tuned into hearing what the problems are now. Interesting. And just looking at the kind of assembly of horses now going into, going into the festival, quietly, um, Nicky Henderson's got, what, five, six favourites, something like that, for, for some of the bigger races. What's the atmosphere like around Seven Barrows at the moment? It's fantastic, really. I mean, at the start of the season, I think we were sort of scratching our heads, really, as to what would, you know, go to the festival with a really live chance. Um, and and now, you know, he's, he's got a, a good few um, 
shots to fire at it. And uh, I, I think uh, this is always a fantastic time of year to be around the Seven Barrows Yard um, because it's a real sort of everyone's gearing up and uh, the screws are beginning to tighten. And um, yeah, it's very noticeable. And you're, you're a bit different in some ways because you, you enjoy the amount of time you spend there and schooling and putting the putting the feedback in a bit like you were saying with with Shishkin and not not every jockey would be would be doing that no I mean I, I've been at Seven Barrow since I was 19 um I'm now 33 and I've, I've put enough put an awful lot of time and it's almost like my second home really and uh I love spending time there and um trying to work things out and get these horses to to reach their potential and uh try and help out as much as I can and um be a be a positive influence as much as I can Today's all about the the ties that bind, I suppose. Looking at the people on my on my right, uh, I I enjoyed your your little clip earlier on in the in the plunge. Have you done the plunge pool this morning? No, I have not. <laughs> I mean, it, you make out as though you're enjoying it. It looks it looks horrible to me. It it was uh, advocated by Connor Schubert, the sort of the go-to PT in the Cotswolds, and. Um, yeah, so a few of us have been jumping in and out, and uh, it's okay after 30 seconds, but um, those first 30 seconds aren't very nice. But um, <laughs> no. There's often days if he doesn't fancy it, he gets his butler to do it instead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure you just like to to uh, to put a button on the uh, on the Tom Skew loving, Nico. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't get to pay tribute to him yesterday. Um, but all I can say, it was an absolute pleasure to work with the guy for as long as I was riding. Um, he acts like he's 25, not 40 going on 41. Um, but uh, no, he's, he was firm but fair on the race course, but a great deal of fun um, in our corner. And he'll be sorely missed, particularly around Cheltenham. And uh, I don't know who's going to fill his place. No, we're all trying to guess as well. Nico, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Nick. Just not quite long enough to finish the pastry that had, break. I nearly went for a second one. That was delicious. Very good pastries this week. Now, Sarah's been producing the last two weeks. Her pastries have been of a much higher standard. The whole thing's a better quality, really. Mm. Mm. Bruce, no pressure, but none of those dusty, stale jobs next week, please. Um, last week on this show, mm. I spent a while, some would say too long, interviewing Andrew Rhodes from the Gambling Commission. Well, first of all, I have to thank Andrew Rhodes, the Chief Executive of the Gambling Commission, for coming on the programme, because he came on the programme. I agree. And, and, I, it, would I, be, and it, would be, it would have been quite easy yeah. for him to say, no, we're in the you know, delicate stage approaching the white paper, which is what, let's face it, everyone else in the industry is mm. saying when they don't accede to requests to come on and talk about I don't it. Di I don't disagree, and, and I, I have noted on my Twitter that one or two people have been discourteous to Andrew. I, I've added him into at least 100 tweets in the last week. Unfortunately, he must be grateful for that. Unfortunately, he hasn't replied to any of those. Um, but I've noticed a couple of times that people have been quite rude, and I think that that is unhelpful and we shouldn't do that. Having said that, we are two and a half years into this process, and it's the first time I've seen Andrew appear either on uh, Racing mm -hmm. TV or Sky Sports Racing or ITV Racing. Um, he made a speech, I believe, in Denmark before Christmas. He made a speech at ICE this year. He made a speech at ICE last year, the International Gambling Exhibition. Um, 
those are about the only pronouncements he's made publicly during this time. I've been following this more than most people. I didn't actually really know what he looked like until okay. you did your so, interview. So you know that what he looks like now. He doesn't really like he hasn't been communicating effectively with the industry. Yeah, well, and with punters. But when I I um, sent him a message a few weeks ago, he immediately got back and said, "Yes, I'd like to do this fair at play, some point." Fair play. He came, he on. came so, on. So we've given him the, the, the credit that, mm. that's due for for coming on, and he wanted to clarify two things. First of all, the role of the gambling commission, mm -hmm. and secondly, he wanted to clarify that. As he, uh, as he stipulated in his Racing Post interview, and again on, on the show last week, that it wasn't, contrary to popular belief, the Gambling Commission that had just gone out and mandated that bookmakers should start installing um, both input and output friction, to use mm. the current unfortunate vernacular, yeah. um, with regard to affordability checks. Yeah. Um, now, anecdotally, this is not borne out by what the bookmakers are telling well, not the just the bookmakers. The I mean, and indeed, it's not borne out by what punters are telling. You know, if you want to ring, if you want to read the Racing Post letters page any time mm. in the last five weeks, you'll have dozens of people but telling the, you that the, they're being done for affordability. But um, the, the, the key, the key to what he was saying is that the mm. gambling commission were being portrayed as the big bad wolf, and in fact, yeah. they're there for X, Y, and Z. They haven't been saying A, B, and okay. C. So what's the? What's I the, hate what's to the, read something off my phone, but I can't. No, do it. I couldn't remember all of this. So a thing went out from the Gambling Commission to operators in a, a, a report mm -hmm. uh, in 2019 to 2020. It was called Raising Standards for Consumers Enforcement Report. Uh, Triggers and Customer Affordability was written at the top of the report, and this was sent out uh, in 2019. Uh, so I'm just going to, I'll try not to read the whole thing because it's rather long, but um, this is probably the key sen sentence from it. Okay. Operators must interact with customers early on to set adequate informed affordability triggers to protect customers from gambling related harm. Failure to do so could render the operator non-compliant. Customers wishing to spend more than the national average should be asked to provide information to support a higher affordability trigger, such as three months pay slips, P60s, tax returns or bank statements, which will both inform the affordability level the customer may believe appropriate with objective evidence while enabling the licensee to have a better insight into the source of these funds and whether they are legitimate or not. Now, Putting aside the fact that he's muddied the waters there, or the commission have muddied the waters there by bringing anti-money laundering into affordability, which the two things should not be conflated, and, and that seems ridiculous to me that they've done that. Um, this is a clear, you know, it's a clear directive from the Gambling Commission that it will affect your license if you don't bring this in. Uh, I've spoken to several people who work in compliance at different companies this week and they've told me that there is pressure on them and that they're told that they could have a license review if they don't bring them in. Uh, the uh, the people that work for the Gambling Commission um, who do the liaison between companies and the Gambling Commission uh, will often ask, well, what what are your trigger points? What, are, what You know, how much can a person deposit uh, before you ask them for this kind of information? And sometimes an amount is said, and then they turn around and say, well, the Gambling Commission turn around and say, well, that, that's too high. It needs to be lower than that, mm -hmm. and if you don't lower it, 
uh, it may cause a review of your license. So I'm afraid, Andrew Rhodes, I, I don't believe what you were saying there about... Uh, now, you might say it's semantics, it's the wording, we're not actually mandating it, we're just heavily recommending it or something. But, I mean, you know, he came here to say we don't, we don't mandate affordability. They definitely do. So what do you think his motivation was? Well, I don't understand. I mean, to me, they should change their name from the Gambling Commission to the Problem Gambling Commission because they're not... You know, it, this small area of gambling, and of course, it annoys me as well that we have to precursor every sentence with, of course, no one wants to see gambling harm. Because, of course, no one wants to see gambling harm. It's so annoying that we have to feel we have to say that every time, though, because supporting gambling and being in favour of gambling doesn't mean that you're in favour of you know, massive harm. He said to you last week, it really annoyed me actually, he said, oh, I can't discuss individual case, cases when you mentioned your earlier guest, who's a, a wealthy businessman and an owner that wants to have 50 pounds three times a week and has now faced an affordability check. First of all, he said, well, that could have been to do with money laundering. Well, what, he's money laundering to bet three, to, three times a week, 50 pounds? That's, that's utterly ludicrous. If, if they're doing money laundering checks on people like that, that must be wrong. Um, and secondly, he said, oh, I can't discuss individual cases. But then he immediately went in to discuss the case of a man who had lost X thousand, you know, a terrible case where undoubtedly the family, you know, had a very bad time. And, it, you know, obviously nobody wants to see gambling harm. And, and of course, the industry have brought it on themselves by some horrendous practices over the last 20 years. Um, but none of that matters right now because we're talking about what's happening now. And um, it just annoyed me that he, he, uh, he, he picked up on that. I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> well, you, you did, however, um, touch on bookmakers' own responsibilities. Yeah. And it, do representatives from some of the major firms mm. now not need to clarify their position? Now, clearly there is a nervousness and anxiety uh, in, in, the, in the corridors of power in, in mm. these, these huge firms about coming out publicly and saying anything, well, we're still waiting for the Yeah, of course. White and, paper. and obviously but, they would say that they want clarity and the white paper can give clarity to the industry and, and punters would like to know where they stand. It may give some clarity to the industry, now, but it's, it, what it doesn't give is a guarantee as to how the contract between punter and bookmaker is going to play out over the next few years. Yeah, and Andrew uh, Rhodes, Andrew, you know, people are screaming out for this clarity. But Andrew Rhodes could give clarity. He could turn around and say that that directive from 2019, 2020 that I just read from is no longer operative. And that we, you know, we don't believe that that's going forward the way things should be. You know, we have, obviously, we keep changing the gambling minister every five minutes, but Paul Scully turned around and was... Do we, very, do actually, do we know who the gambling minister is yet? Sort of. But, uh, irrespective of that, Paul Scully, the previous gambling minister, you know, turned around and said that he, he didn't believe that we should be telling people how can, they should spend their money. Uh, and Andrew Rhodes said the same thing. He said, we, d we don't think that the Gambling Commission has a moral responsibility to tell you how much you should spend and what you should spend it on. Well, in that case, he could offer clarity to the industry by saying that the directive from the thing, that, the report that I just read a part of to you, 
uh, is, is no longer there. And just let's, let's take that away and say that we're not going to do affordability. The government have decided clearly that this is a political hot potato. It's very difficult to deal with because, of course, nobody wants to see gambling harm. On the other hand, it's a four billion industry uh, and it supports horse racing, which is, you know, uh, lots of Tory MPs are in horse racing constituencies. It can upset voters. So they've obviously decided for that reason they're going to kick it in the long grass. I'm not saying that's the reason the white paper's been delayed, but the rumour is that the white paper won't be clear on affordability checks, um, that they're going to be left to the Gambling Commission. Well, unless we, we need clarity from one or the other. If we can't have, if the government decided it's too difficult to legislate on, well, why should it be too easy for Andrew Rhodes to legislate on? Who elected him? From clarity, Neil, mm. as we close this programme. Oh, can I just quickly say something else that I meant to say? Well, the other thing you've that got to really, be quick. I'll be I'm... really quick. The other thing that really, really annoyed me was when you asked him how many people are problem gamblers in the country, they boast on their website that it's 0.3%, which some people would say is a dubious figure or whatever. But that is the figure that we've got, and they're happy to boast when they're looking for a pat on the back. But when they're looking for more funding for, their, for the Gambling Commission, they want to say it's 10%. He, one minute he said, oh, online is more dangerous, it's 10%. But on the other hand, it's 0.3%. It's got to be one or the other.